You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, and we'll read together verses 43 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray together. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our joy and our privilege to be able to look at your word together. We thank you that you have given us a revelation of yourself and your word. We read it and we study it. We preach from it. We listen attentively to it in order that we might know and see our Savior more clearly each and every day. We pray that you would bless this time in your word, that your spirit would be here to teach us and instruct us, help us to see something of Christ in this passage today, and of your grace toward us in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, Last week, if you looked in your bulletin, you may have noticed that the title of the sermon was The Sons of Jonah. So if you're paying attention to the sermon title and then you paid attention to the sermon, and I realize not everybody does both of those. Some people do one or the other, and you have to choose which one you're going to do. But if you were paying attention to both of them, then you would have said to yourself, what did anything that Jim just say have to do with the sons of Jonah? What did anything that he just say have to do with the title of that sermon? And others of you are sitting here saying to yourself, I didn't realize that that mess had a title. And it did, but the disconnect is due to the fact that I left out a very important detail when speaking of Peter and Andrew last week. And that is that they are the sons of a man named Jonah. Remember, Peter is known as Simon Barjona, Simon Barjona, Bar meaning son of, Jonah meaning, well, Jonah, as a form of the word John or a form of the name John or Jonas, Jonas, J-O-N-A-S. So Peter and Andrew's father's name was Jonah. Interestingly enough, that is probably the most that we know of Peter and Andrew's parents. We don't know what his mother's name was. We don't know anything about their father, what he did for a living. He might have been a fisherman, Peter and, and a fisherman, Peter and Andrew, might have gone into the family business, but we don't know that for sure. But we do know that they were brothers and that their father's name was Jonah. And speaking of things that I forgot to tell you last week, this is a great segue, I also forgot to mention that Andrew's name means manly. Manly. I think that a lot of times we have pictures in our minds of the disciples that are wholly unworthy of the men themselves. One thing we need to keep in mind is that these men were men. And I mean men. 
I think probably any one of the twelve disciples could have taken any man in this room. Because they were men. And we have this idea in our minds, I think, at least I do sometimes, I picture the disciples sort of like you see them in the stained glass and in the literature and in the art that came out of the Middle Ages as these weak, pale, scrawny, gaunt-looking, effeminate, long-haired with long-wavy-haired, sort of girly men. That, I think, is largely the product of an aesthetic mindset which came out of the early church and the Middle Ages. Asceticism was the belief that if you denied your flesh, if you denied all of the desires of your flesh and even some of your bodily needs, like food and water and sleep and warmth and comfort, that you would, in doing that, starve your flesh. And in starving your flesh, you would help your spirit have victory over your flesh. That is the whole mindset behind monasteries. That's what led men to cloister themselves up in brick buildings and deny themselves food, water, and clothing, and warmth, and the pleasures of wives and children. That was asceticism. And so there was this mindset that the more pale and gaunt and weak and effeminate you looked, the more holy or pious you were. And so like the Pharisees, the monastics, the monks, thought that they could display their outward righteousness by showing how uh, weak and frail they were by denying their body what they needed. That's what Martin Luther did before he got saved, actually. He used to sleep with his head on a rock without a pillow, without any kind of blanket, without any covering, to make himself cold, thinking that if he froze himself in that cold German monastery or denied himself food and water and sleep and any kind of comfort, that he could beat back the desires of his flesh. And so there was this mentality that the more pale and gaunt and weakly and sickly you looked, the more holy and righteous you were. That's oftentimes how the disciples are portrayed. Listen, these guys were fishermen. Fishermen. They were men. I picture guys with sun-beaten and wind-worn faces who had pipes on them, whose hands were calloused and cracked from hard day's work. These men worked through the day, sometimes all the way through the nights, lifting heavy nets full of fish over over the edge of a boat into the boat and then spent their days and their off time cleaning and marketing the fish. These guys were manly men. Now, I don't know about the tax collector and I don't know about the trader, but I'm pretty certain that Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Nathaniel were manly men, not weak and effeminate in any way. So, if you think of the disciples as these sort of weak, limp-looking, gaunt, pale, girly men, You have an idea of the disciples that I think is totally unworthy of these very manly men. I think there's a reason why Andrew was called manly. I think he was a manly man. So we're looking at the disciples, obviously. Now that I played catch-up from last week, let me remind you that we have looked now at three of these five disciples that are mentioned in John chapter 1. The first three were John, the writer of the gospel, who's not named, though he's present. He's the unnamed disciple in verse 37 Verse 40, Andrew is named. They were together with John the Baptist. Then after they came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Andrew went and he fetched his brother uh, Peter and brought Peter and introduced Peter to Jesus. So we looked at John and Andrew's first encounter with Jesus. We have looked at Peter's first encounter with Jesus. And now in the closing verses of John chapter 1, there are two more disciples who are named for us. And we get their first encounter with Jesus. The first is Philip, and he is the focus from verses 43 through 45. And the second is Nathaniel, and he is the focus of verses 46 through 51. Philip and Nathaniel. So today we're going to look at Philip, and just at the risk of being overly simplistic, we're just going to sort of boil it down to basically two things. Number one, we're going to look at Philip's call, and then second, Philip's response to that call. We see the call in verses 43 and 44, where Jesus says to him, follow me. Then in verse 45, 
we see Philip's response to that call. He went and he found Nathanael and said to Nathanael, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip's call and then the results of Philip's call. So let's look first at his call, verses 43 and 44. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now the he that purposed to go into Galilee is Jesus purposing to go into Galilee. And he that is Jesus found Philip. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And I want you to notice the time note at the beginning of verse 43. We've we've noted that there's one week sort of laid out for us chronologically at the beginning of this um, this book. Verse 19 is day one. Verse 20, uh, well, there was day two, day three, you saw it, verse 35, and then day four. This is day four now. So in the previous day, Nathaniel and, sorry, Andrew and Peter found Jesus. Now the next day, this is day four, Jesus goes in search of Philip and finds Philip. I also want you to notice two places that are mentioned, Galilee and Bethsaida. Now I know as we go through the Gospel of John that in all likelihood, most of the people here are totally unfamiliar with the geography of the land of Israel and the idea of how big it is and the dimensions of it and where things are located. And so I was kind of struggling this week with, I I want to communicate to you where the places are at and where Jesus moved and traveled and all of that. And I want to do so in a memorable fashion. And I want, at the end of the Gospel of John, for you to be as familiar with the land of Israel as you were with the Mediterranean area after we got done talking about all of Paul's three missionary journeys and all the places that he stopped. You remember that? We had the maps and we did all the fun stuff and talked about how far that was. So here's what I'm going to do. This You're facing north, so this is going to work out really good. This divider over here, and I want you to picture this in your mind as I paint the picture for you. The divider over here is going to be the Jordan River. It's blue. Isn't that convenient? And at the north end of this divider is the Sea of Galilee, the north end of the divider. At the south end of that divider is the Dead Sea. Everything flows into the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, and empties into the Dead Sea where it just evaporates. And that's why the Dead Sea is filled with salt, and it's dead because there's nothing living in it. Also, don't confuse that with the Red Sea. That's out in the parking lot. So we got the Jordan River over here, and I realize that people listening online and by CD are going to be totally lost by all of this, but you will benefit from it. On the other side of this wall over here is the Mediterranean Ocean. That's to the west. So this is the land of Israel between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And up north here is the Sea of Galilee. On the north coast of the Sea of Galilee were two towns. One was Bethsaida on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, And one was Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So over here, about where Mel's sitting at the end of this first row, that's Nazareth. Right over here, about where the stand is at, is Cana of Galilee. In the south, about where where the sound cabinet is at, is the city of Jerusalem. The length of this Jordan River is about 60 miles from one end to the other. The width of this sanctuary here would be about 35 to 45 miles, depending on which end you measured it. If you measured it up here, it's between about 30 miles wide. If you measure it down there, because it's sort of a angle-shaped piece of land, it's about 45 miles wide. Now, to help you put all of this into perspective, I want you to realize this. You could take the entire land of Israel in Jesus' day and put it inside the narrowest part of the Idaho panhandle, right up here where we're at, because from Montana to Washington is about 45 miles. So you'd have a little bit of land on each side of the land of Israel if you were to put it in the Idaho panhandle. Small, isn't it? Now, if this north wall here, the north end of the land of Israel, is the Canadian border, back there at the south end is about Lake Coeur d'Alene. So it's not very long. Some of you look at the land of Israel all blown up and you say, wow, that must stretch from San Diego to Seattle. 
No, you could fit the whole thing with room to spare, basically in the Idaho panhandle. Now, now you understand why the Jews don't go for that land for peace deal. Right? They don't really have any land to give up for peace, in case you haven't noticed that. It's just a very small spit of land that they do enjoy. You could travel from Lake Coeur d'Alene to the Canadian border and basically travel through everything that Israel had to offer in one day. It's a very small piece of land. Okay, so, where were we? Oh yeah, then the nation of Israel is divided into three, basically three zones or three regions. In the south you had Judea, in the middle you had Samaria, and in the north you had Galilee. Galilee had Nazareth and Cana and Bethsaida and Capernaum. All of that was in the region of Galilee. In the middle was the region of Samaria, and bound in the south was Judea. Down where Jerusalem and the temple were, the Dead Sea in the southern end of the kingdom or southern end of the land. Now, so all of the people in the south, back there at the back, those are all of the Pharisees, the self-righteous Sadducees, and all of the self-righteous Judaizers. You folks in the middle, stop snickering, because you are those no-good Samaritan dogs, those half-breeds that sort of mingled with the uh, Babylonians and the uh, Assyrians when they were taken captive, and everybody, nobody went through the land of Samaria. Everybody went around Samaria. So if you were in the south and you wanted to get to Judea, you went miles out of your way over across the Jordan River, up the side of the Jordan River, and back across into Galilee, because no self-respecting Jew ever wanted to have Samaritan dust on the bottom of his shoes by passing through Samaria, which is in the middle. And then up here in the north is all of you Galileans who are no good whatsoever, because can anything good come out of Nazareth? Everybody look down on Galilee, because Galilee was nobody. So if you're anybody you were in the south, you're self-righteous, or you're a half-breed Samaritan dog, or you're no good Galilean. So you are a miserable lot. And that is how the land of Israel basically was divided up. Now, John chapter 1 says that Jesus, when he met John, and John was baptizing, outside in Bethany, other side of the Jordan. There was a Bethany that was outside of Jerusalem on this side of the Jordan, over here, way down south in Judea. Then there was a Bethany, which we don't know where it was, but John says it was on the other side of the Jordan, could have been north, on the other side of the divider over there, that was where John was baptizing. So it says in verse 43, now we come back to our text, the next day Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. So how did he make that trip? Well, it may be that he sort of came up the Jordan River and across to the south end of the Sea of Galilee in order to search for Nathaniel and Philip. Or it may be that Jesus just simply went up and went right around the north end of the Sea of Galilee and stopped in Bethsaida where Philip was. And then he came across because by the time he gets to John chapter 2, he's over here at the mic stand, which is the city of Cana. And it's about 12 miles from Cana down to Nazareth. It's about 20 miles from Nazareth over here to Bethsaida where Jesus is at. So it's just a very small little area in which Jesus is operating. Everybody got that picture in your mind? Well, if we ever move out of this room before we get out of the Gospel of John, you're going to be hurting, aren't you? You're going to everything, every time you mention a city now, you're going to be thinking, okay, was that the lampstand or was that the microphone or what, where was that in our mind? I was going somewhere with all of that. Oh, here we go. Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Jesus intentionally went somewhere in order to find Philip. Jesus' encounter with Philip is different than the rest of the disciples. Do you notice that all the way through chapter 1, all these disciples that have met Jesus so far have all been brought by human instrumentality? How did John and Andrew hear about Jesus? Through a preacher, John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did Peter meet Jesus? Through his brother Andrew bringing him to meet Jesus. How does Nathaniel later on meet Jesus? Through Philip bringing Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Philip is the only one in this whole chapter who has met Jesus 
Because Jesus sought him out. And I think that that's significant. And I think that it's unique. It's different than all of the other encounters in the chapter. Philip is sought out by the Lord. The Lord intended or purposed to go into the region of Galilee in order to find Philip. Now why is that? Did Jesus know Philip beforehand? Was he already aware of who Philip was? Had they met previously? Did he go to seek out Philip to tell Philip now, you know me, you've heard of me, now it's time to follow me? Or did Jesus just know Philip in an omniscient sense, in the, in the sense that they had never met, never seen each other, but Jesus knew there was a man named Philip that he had to seek out and to bring to himself. And I don't know if Jesus met Philip on the way in Bethesda, in Bethsaida or in Galilee itself. The text doesn't say, but it does say that Jesus purposed to go into Galilee in order to seek out Philip. I want you to notice, and I think this is significant, the diversity of ways in which these folks meet Jesus. There is no cookie-cutter way in which God brings a soul to Himself. He works in a diverse number of ways through a diverse number of means. If I were to take a poll here this morning, we would find that some of you came to Christ as a result of a friend or a family member. Some of you through a spouse. Some of you through a child. Some of you through a church. Some of you at a concert or from the preaching of the Word, or a tract, or a book, or a CD, or a radio program, or a television program, or at a Billy Graham crusade, or at a televised Billy Graham crusade. It's always the Spirit of God that does it. It's always sovereign grace that affects it. It is always the Spirit of God who is doing it through His power. And it always really results in the same thing, that is repentance and faith. But oh, the diversity of ways through which people are brought to the Savior. It's kind of a conviction to me that I think we should be careful to question the legitimacy of other people's salvation just because it doesn't match the way it was with ourselves. For instance, with me, salvation was a very emotional thing. When I came to the Savior, I came bawling my eyes out over my sin. That's not that way for everybody. Some people it happens instantaneously. Other people it takes a season. Some people fight for years against the truth and militate against the truth and hate the truth and deny the truth and attack the truth. Some people bow their knee to the truth just like that the first time they hear it. Some people spend their whole lives hating Christ. Other people get saved early in childhood. Some people get saved later in childhood. Some people are brought to faith through a, through prosperity. Other people are brought to faith through a personal tragedy. There's such a diversity of ways. And I think that heaven is going to be us sitting around and meeting people we have never seen and talking about the ways in which the Spirit of God worked to bring His sheep to the Savior. All to the glory of God. So Philip is unique. Philip is different, and Philip is sought out by the Lord himself. Philip, it says in verse 44, lived in Bethsaida, which was also the hometown of Peter and who? Andrew. That was their hometown. Now, it wasn't their adopted hometown. Mark chapter 1 says that they were running a fishing business and had a home in Capernaum, which, remember, is up here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Just to the east of that was Bethsaida. Interesting note about both Bethsaida and uh, Capernaum is that both of those towns were condemned by Jesus because they did not repent at the miracles that were done in those towns. John chapter 10, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. Woe to you, Capernaum! You will not be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to hell. So Peter's adopted hometown, Capernaum, and Peter's hometown, Bethsaida, Philip's hometown, Bethsaida, were condemned by the Lord because a lot of miracles were done in those two towns. So Jesus purposed to go into Galilee in order to find Philip, and he found Philip there, and he said to Philip, follow me. Now last week, 
I kind of went through Peter and Andrew and sort of gave you a biographical sketch of those two men, which helps us sort of understand those guys. And I want to do the same thing real quickly for Philip. Philip, his name means lover of horses. It's a Greek name. In fact, he is unique because he is the only disciple, the only one of the twelve, who is only known by his Greek name. Now, customarily, he would have likely had a Jewish name as well, but none of the synoptic Gospels, nor the Gospel of John, and by synoptics, remember we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of the Gospels in the New Testament refer to him by his Jewish name. Only his Greek name is used. And it indicates to us probably that he was what was called a very Hellenistic Jew. At that time, Greek culture, Greek language, Greek customs had spread all over the Mediterranean Sea, and a lot of Jews had adopted everything Greek, because it was kind of the thing. So they spoke Greek, they were very fluent in Greek, they lived like Greeks, they looked like Greeks, but they were Jews in every way. In all likelihood, Philip came from a very Hellenistic family. You remember the Hellenistic Jews in Acts chapter 6? There was a complaint that arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily serving of food. Remember that in Acts 6? So there's a group of Jews which are very Greek. Likely that is the case with Philip. Probably a very Greek-thinking, Greek-acting, Greek-looking, Greek-sounding guy. Very Greek for a Jew. But he's still a Jew. And for whatever reason, he's never known by his Jewish name, always by his Greek name, Philip. We don't know a lot about Philip from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because he's only mentioned in the list of the disciples in each of those Gospels. But in the Gospel of John we see three different times where Philip is mentioned. And all three of those tell us something about Philip. Philip is a man who is totally unlike James and John, totally unlike Peter and Andrew. Peter was sort of a go-getter, sort of an ambitious, take the bull by the horn, speak for everybody, lead the charge type of guy. James and John, they were the sons of thunder. Remember, Andrew is kind of the -the behind-the-scenes guy. Philip, from everything we see about him in the New Testament, Philip seems to be out of his element every time he's mentioned. Every time Philip is mentioned, he is responding very awkwardly to a situation, saying sort of the wrong thing, responding the wrong way, always looks like he feels completely out of his element in being with the disciples and with Jesus. John MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, writes this about Philip. He was a facts and figures only guy, a by-the-book, practical-minded, non-forward-thinking type of individual. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, Pessimistic, narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons why things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist rather than a visionary. Know anybody like that? Know anybody like that? Let me, let me portray for you the three times that Philip is mentioned outside of John 1. He's mentioned in John chapter 6 where Jesus saw the multitudes of people coming to him, knew that they needed something to eat. So it says in John chapter 6 that Jesus saw the multitudes and he said to Philip, intending to test Philip because Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. So he said to Philip, Philip, where can we buy bread for these to eat? What does Philip say? 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for each of them to have even just a little bit. What is Philip doing? He's looking at the crowd. He's looking at the money bag. He's looking at their food supply. And the one thing he's not looking at is the Son of God standing in front of him. And Philip says, look, I've run the figures on this, Lord. We don't have it in the budget. Even if we had it in the budget, we couldn't find a place to supply that amount of bread. If we had 200 denarii worth of bread, we could not feed each of these people just to even give them a little bit to satisfy their hunger. We cannot feed this mass of people on the budget that we have 
Because we don't have it. We, what do you think this is? The White House? I mean, that's a brief sort of a paraphrase of what he was saying, but that's what he was saying. This doesn't pencil out, Lord. We can't do this. Completely out of his element. Failed the test. Jesus tested him. How are we going to feed them? On what we have here, we've run the numbers. We can't do it. Then in John chapter 12, another interesting example. Some Greeks were coming to the feast and they wanted to see Jesus. So they go to who? Well, sorry, I should go to whom? They go to the most Greek or Hellenistic Jew among them, which was Philip. They came to Philip and the Gentiles, the Greeks, said to Philip, we want to see your master, we want to see Jesus. So what does Philip do? Bring him to Jesus? He goes to Andrew. Why go to Andrew? Why not just take them to see Jesus? What is Philip doing? Philip is looking through the discipleship manual and he's saying, we got Gentiles who want to see the Savior. I don't even know what to do with this. There's nothing in here that says what to do in this situation. And he goes to Andrew and says, hey, we got some Greeks that want to see Jesus. If I'm Andrew, what do I do? Why don't we take him to Jesus? Call me kooky, but that sounds like a good idea, which is what Andrew does. Andrew takes Philip and the Greeks and they go and they see Jesus. So what is Philip? He's just sort of the guy that doesn't quite know what to do or how to handle the situation. Then you see him again in John chapter 14 when Jesus, after when preparing his disciples for his departure, has spoken to them all the way through John chapter 13. He gets to John chapter 14. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and where I go, I will come again and will receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. And Philip jumps in and he says the most inappropriate thing, unwarranted thing that could have been said. Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Now, if I was one of the other disciples, I would have said, Oh, Philip, wrong thing to say. Take it back quick. Take it back quick. But Philip doesn't. And the Lord had to gently rebuke him. Philip, I've been with you how long? And you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need more proof, Philip. You've seen the signs. You have heard my words. You have heard my teaching. You have seen my glory. You have beheld it as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How is it that you now think that you need to see the Father? You don't need to see the Father. Peter's the guy, or Philip is the guy that's just entirely out of his element. Doesn't know how to respond in these situations. Very awkward every time he's seen in the Gospel of John. Sort of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, or just stuck in a moment of indecision, not knowing what the right thing to do would be. And that's Philip. Now, whatever happened to Philip? I told you what happened to Andrew and Peter. Philip was martyred for the faith as well, along with the other disciples. And according to church history and tradition, we don't have anything in Scripture that describes Philip's martyrdom. But according to all the sources that we do have outside of Scripture, Philip was stoned in Heliopolis, which is in Phrygia, Asia Minor, about eight years after Acts 12, which is when James was martyred in Acts chapter 12. About eight years later, about the time, if you want to put it in an Acts timeline, about the time that Paul started his third missionary journey, Philip was martyred for the faith. But he's alive back in our text, so let's go back to the text in John chapter 1. Verse 43 and 44, Jesus did find Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now it's my conviction that that sentence probably was said in the context of a lot of other things in Jesus' discussion with Philip. He said to Philip, follow me. And I believe that the command of the shepherd to his sheep to follow him is always accompanied with the grace to follow him. So Jesus said to Philip, follow me. And Philip obviously got up and followed the shepherd, followed the Savior, and obeyed because we see the results of Philip's call or Philip's response to his call in verse 45. 
Philip went and he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's the first thing that Philip does when he meets the Savior? I have to tell somebody about what I have found. Now, I think that that is the most natural response of somebody when they get saved, is that they want to tell somebody about what they have found. It usually takes us months or sometimes uh, years in order to make excuses for not sharing our faith and to be comfortable and to let the fire of our conversion sort of wear off and fall away before we come up with all kinds of suitable reasons why we shouldn't share our faith and why we should remain silent in the face of other people. But I believe that the most natural response of the child of God to meeting the Savior is to want to tell other people about what they have found. So Philip went and he found Nathaniel. And it seems that Nathaniel was somebody that Philip knew. Now, if Philip was from Bethsaida, over here on the Sea of Galilee, and Nathaniel was from Bethsaida, and Peter and Andrew were from Bethsaida, and Peter and Andrew knew James and John, that it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that probably all six of these guys knew each other, possibly from childhood. They may all six of them have been childhood friends. Four of them, Philip, or three of them, Philip and Andrew and Peter, all grew up in Bethsaida together. Peter, James, John, and Andrew all ran a fishing business in Capernaum together. And Philip knew Nathaniel well enough that when he wanted to share the Savior with him, he went to the first person, somebody he had talked to about it before, and said, hey, the one in the Law and the Prophets that Moses spoke of, I have found him. I have found the Messiah. And I love the way that Philip describes Jesus. I have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. I want to tell you something. If you do not, or if you are not able to read through the Old Testament with Jesus colored glasses on, the Old Testament will be a closed book to you. You will read through the Old Testament and you'll read all about the sacrifices and they're not going to mean anything to you until you understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. You're not going to understand the Passover or everything about the Passover until you realize that Jesus is the Passover Lamb who was sacrificed for us. And you will not understand any of the prophecies about the coming branch or the righteous King or the Son of David or the ruling and reigning servant of the Lord. You're not going to understand any of that until you understand that Jesus is all of that. And here Philip understood everything in the Old Testament, everything Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about, I have found that one, the one that they described. And that is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now that had to have the most anticlimactic ring to it that you could possibly imagine to your average Jew. I have found the servant of the Lord, the righteous king, Messiah the prince, the prophet that Moses foretold was coming, the servant of the Lord, the perfect Lamb of God. I have found that one. Really? Where does he come from? Nazareth. Nazareth. That's right. Nazareth in Galilee? That's right. Nazareth. The Messiah from Nazareth. Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm saying. Nazareth. You know anything about Nazareth? The most backwater, underrated, underloved city probably in the whole nation of Israel. Uh, Andrew, or sorry, Nathaniel certainly saw the disconnect when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're telling me that the Messiah, the prince, comes out of Nazareth, and he's the son of Joseph. Well, who's Joseph? Oh, he's that poor carpenter who lived in Nazareth. The Messiah, a carpenter's son. That's right. The son of a king, we might expect. The son of a prophet, we might expect. 
Even the son of a man like John the Baptist we might expect, but the son of a poor, unknown carpenter from Nazareth. That's where your Messiah comes from. That's right. But see, Philip knew, and Andrew knew, that the prophets foretold everything about Jesus, including His birth and where He would come from, and that He would grow up uh, in, in uh, an unknown area, in an unknown region of the country, that the Lord would prosper everything that came into His hand, the Lord would guide Him and direct Him, that He'd be virgin-born. And by the way, don't, uh, don't think that Philip's statement, the son of Joseph, is a denial of the virgin birth. It's not for two reasons. First, because Philip probably didn't know anything about the virgin birth at this point. That was, I doubt if that was something that Jesus sort of brought up in the initial conversation with any of his disciples. Hi, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I'm born of a virgin. It's not something that would have come up right at the beginning. It's something that Jesus would have shared with his disciples later on. So in all likelihood, Philip didn't know anything about the virgin birth at this point. But second, it was entirely appropriate and the only right way to introduce or describe Jesus by his hometown and his legal father's name. So though Joseph was not his father biologically, Joseph was his father in every way legally, for all intents and purposes, in every way except biologically, Joseph was Jesus' father. And that's how you would describe somebody. You would describe them by their first name, the town that they lived in, and their father's name. He is Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from the city of Nazareth. Completely appropriate to describe him that way. Not at all an indication that Joseph was his physical father. So Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom the Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I want you to notice one more thing about our text before we're done. I want you to notice in verse 43, look what it says. The next day Jesus purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. Now look at verse 45. Philip said, We have found the Messiah. Now here's my question. Did Jesus find Philip or did Philip find Jesus? Which one of those is true? Because verse 43 says that Jesus found Philip. Verse 45, Philip says, we have found the Messiah. So who did the finding, Philip or Jesus? Who found whom? It's both. It's both. And you know what I love about the Bible? Passages like this where both of these truths are presented side by side in order that we might see that both of these things are true. Verse 43 is the divine perspective. Jesus sought out Philip. Verse 45 is Philip's perspective. I found the Messiah. You and I are most likely to uh, relate to Philip's perspective, which is the human perspective. From our perspective, we find in Jesus everything we're looking for. You could take Philip's experience and describe it like this. Philip could say, I was reading the Old Testament Law and the Prophets, and I came to an understanding of who it was that the Old Testament Law and the Prophets were describing. And then I stumbled upon this man, I met him, I talked with him, he commanded me, I obeyed the command and I found life in his name. I have found the Messiah, I found the Savior. I would describe my personal experience the same way and I would describe it like this. I grew up in an unbelieving home, in a non-Christian environment. I had grandparents that were Christians and I came to a point of about eight or nine years old when my great-grandmother died of watching her casket being dropped into the ground and I said to myself, hmm, that's going to be me someday. And I started to think about heaven and hell and the immortality of the soul and life after death and whether all of that existed and whether there was a God or not. And I started to fear a death. And I feared death because I knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that I did bad things. and I had a guilty conscience. 
And then I started reading the Scripture, and I started considering the claims of Christianity, and I had people present the claims of Christianity to me, and I evaluated the claims of Christianity against other worldviews and other religions, and I came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was who He said He was, and that the Bible was true, and that what was in it was rational and right, and that I was a guilty sinner. And then I heard the Gospel presented, and I bowed my knee to Christ, and I turned from my sin, I repented of my sin, I believed in Christ, and I trusted the Savior for the forgiveness of sins. And I have found life in His name. I found the Messiah. I found my Savior. Now listen. Everything I just described to you is true. From my vantage point. It's all true. This is exactly how it unfolded for me. But the Bible also talks about another vantage point, and that is God's vantage point. And here's how it unfolded from God's vantage point. No man seeks after God. And whatever your experience was in coming to Christ, I can guarantee you this, it was the result of the Spirit of God working in your heart and in your life. It was the work of the Spirit. It was a divine work. It was a sovereign work. It was a gracious work. It was a loving work. It was a drawing work. And the Spirit of God was doing all of that. And if you called out to Him, it was because He called to you first. If you sought Him, it was because He was seeking you. His seeking you is the cause of you seeking Him. His choosing you is the cause of you choosing Him. From the human perspective, yes, we choose. Yes, we do. Yes, I repented. I responded. I believed. I chose. I did all of that. All of that is true. But what was going on behind the scenes in my heart? And who was seeking me? God is the one who seeks and saves that which is lost. There's only one seeker in all of the universe, and it is God. And He seeks after sinners to save them and to show them mercy. So which is it? Did Philip seek Jesus or did Jesus seek Philip? Who found whom? Did Jesus find Philip or did Philip find Jesus? They're both true. I found my Messiah. I found my Savior. But I'll tell you something. My Savior was looking for me and pursuing me long before I even knew that there was a Jesus. That's the divine perspective. Now we'll just drop it there because we just observe it in the text. I will say this. Had not Jesus sought out Philip, Philip wouldn't have found anything. You realize that? Who did the seeking first? It was Jesus who purposed to go to Galilee to find Philip. And had Jesus not done that, Philip would not have found anything. He would never have seen or known of the Messiah. Now, more could be said about that. And trust me, more will be said about that as we go through the Gospel of John because Jesus picks up this very topic in John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, and John chapter 10 and makes it the topic of His sermon and His discussion with the Pharisees. So I would just say this, go to John chapter 10 and read through John chapter 10 and ask yourself, who seeks whom? Does the shepherd seek the sheep or do the sheep seek the shepherd? Let me describe to you and I'll read to you Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's description of his own salvation. Charles Spurgeon writes this, I was sitting down one day gratefully reflecting on what God had done for me. I knew my sins were pardoned. I knew that I was accepted in Christ Jesus and I knew that I was renewed in heart. And in one moment, the revelation came to me. All this is the work of the Spirit of God. The instant I saw that truth, I said to myself, yes, that's the fact, and God be glorified for it. But why has this great work been wrought in me? I knew that there was no merit in me before the Lord had dealt in mercy with my soul, and so I said to myself, this is the effect of sovereign distinguishing grace. Then I understood in a moment how it is that God begins with us, and that it is God's will and God's eternal purpose, which after all lie deeper down than our will or our purpose. And God's will and God's eternal purpose must have the glory. 
What a revelation it was to me. I saw the doctrines of grace immediately, and I think that anybody who has been brought to find the Savior and who prayerfully studies the reasons for his own salvation can see the same truth that the Lord revealed to me. Because first of all, you began to be thoughtful, did you not? Who made you thoughtful? You would never have found the Savior if you had not become thoughtful instead of careless and indifferent. Who made you to think of divine things? What influence was it that wrought upon you and caused you to feel that you must think about eternity and heaven and hell? Surely it was God the Holy Ghost going forth in the name of Jesus Christ and dealing with you in mercy. Then you had a sense of your need and of your sinfulness. There was a time when you had no such sense. Then who gave it to you? Where do you think that repentance, that sorrow for sin, that desire after Christ came from? Did all of that grow in your own fallen human nature? Ah, believe me, that dunghill never brought forth such fair flowers as these. No, it was Christ who sowed the good seed in your soil, and it was He who made you feel your need for Him. End quote. Now friends, that is the work of the Good Shepherd with His sheep. It is He who made you feel your need for Him. He sought you before you sought Him. He loved you before you loved Him. We love Him because He first loved us and showered His grace upon us. And it is all to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful that the Good Shepherd leads His sheep and calls His sheep and loves His sheep. We thank You that we have been numbered among them, that You by Your grace have set us apart and called and drawn us to Yourself. We thank You that Your grace in Christ was good toward us and that we have come to know it. We praise You and we glorify You. We thank You that like Philip, You first sought us out and that You called to us and told us to follow You. And we thank You that as Your sheep, we heard Your voice and we came to the shepherd. You are to be praised for all of this work in our souls and in our lives. We thank You for the example of it here in Scripture. And we bless and we praise Your holy name for our salvation and all good things that come to us through it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.